Hey there, welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm, brought to you by FunkinStuff.net. This is the interview show that gets deep into the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. I'm your host, Scott Dr. G.X. Goldfine, musicologist and author of Everything is on the One, the First Guide of Funk. If you don't have your copy, get on over to Amazon and pick one up. You'll be so glad you did. It's essential reading and reference. Makes a great gift, too. Whether you're watching to the uh, video version on YouTube, or now editions are also on uh, Daily Motion. Some are on video. It's all over the place. Or listening to the podcast version on iTunes and other leading providers, including now Spotify. I thank you, as always, very much for your continued interest and support in the show. Speaking of which, something new that we're doing, um, you know, keeping the lights on here costs money. Um, it costs money for the servers, it costs money to do the production, and you know what, there's not really money coming in. So a new feature added to the FunkinStuff.net website is a donation option, and if you like the show, if you like the channel, if you want to support the funk and you know what's being done here, please give what you can to help support the program. FunkinStuff.net, on the right-hand side of the page, click there and you can donate easily with a credit card or through PayPal. Much appreciated for that support. This episode features Dr. John Turk Logan, the legendary Dayton, Ohio area radio personality and accomplished media communications figure who is instrumental in putting the city on the map as the funk capital of the world. Beginning his radio career in 1970 at WDAO-FM Radio, that's 107.7. He eventually became the station's program director and would later be credited for creating and promoting what is now known as the Dayton Sound of the 1970s. For that, in 2009, he was inducted into the Dayton Area Broadcasters Hall of Fame. Logan pushed, drew attention, and helped break through first the Ohio players with a string of hits that included Funky Worms, Skin Tight, Fire and all the rest of those great, great tracks. He then was key in getting a string of funk bands on the airways and subsequently scored hit records, achieved fame, and in the process brought focus and prosperity upon the Dayton area. Those acts included Heatwave, Dayton, Faso, Lakeside, Roger Trapman and Zap, Slave, and Son, all of which whose members Logan also befriended. Here, Logan gives his firsthand account of the events and people that forged what he calls the soul of Dayton, which is also the name of a movie script he's shopping around. He also tells amazing, amusing, and arresting insider stories surrounding that once-in-a-lifetime scene and the unfortunate recent failure of a new funk center and museum. You may notice in this broadcast, the lighting is kind of weird on me. Uh, Turk Logan looks fine. Um, but I look kind of odd because there's a fluorescent light that was left on. So uh, it's a little bit of a horror show for yours truly. <laughs> so hopefully uh, you can make it through that. Turk looks great, like I said. With that, I will spare you the Sugarfoot impersonation, but in the vernacular of the magnificent Ohio players, all you jive turkeys, clap your hands for Dr. John Turk Logan. Hey, I'm pleased to welcome to the Truth and Rhythm Nerve Center, Dr. John Turk Logan, who for some 45 years has distinguished himself in radio, records, publishing, education, 
and other communications in and around the Dayton, Ohio area. He is a member of the Dayton Broadcasters Hall of Fame and a key figure during the region's rise to prominence as funk music's capital of the world, which is mostly what we'll discuss today. Turk, how are you? So glad to have you. Hey, thank you very much for having me. I'm I'm pretty good. I'm you know, at at this stage of the game, every day above ground is a good day. Ah, that's a good attitude to have. It's all uphill from there. Yep, all gravy. Um, and you're coming to us from Dayton today. Uh, I actually live right outside of Dayton in Xenia. When I went to Central State in 1986. I found it would be easier for me since I managed the radio station, which was 24 hours a day, uh, to get in from Xenia than it was from Dayton. And, um, you know, I'm only, at the time, I was only 10 minutes from the university. So we just bought a house in Xenia, my wife and I, and that's where we've been for the last almost 25, 26 years now. I've been here since 1988, but uh, we bought a house in um, 94. Mm-hmm. So as we discussed uh, beforehand, you know, I became aware of you through seeing some of your interviews on YouTube. And, um, you know, I was quite impressed finding out of this deep, rich legacy uh, you have and direct involvement in, you know, the music of that area becoming successful and well-known. I was very impressed and I very much look forward to, to meeting you. And I felt like, you know, a kinship to you because I've had such a love of it, you know, ever since the 70s, too. So... Uh, really yeah. good to connect. You know, you know, um, I was very fortunate to have a vision at a very early age, and that vision uh, became a reality. I, that's when I did my autobiography, my first, my first book. I called it the reality of a fantasy, the reality of a dream. I had this dream, and it became a reality. That's amazing. That's fantastic. We all wish we can do that. Yeah, um, I go all the way back to four years old, Scott. And, you know, when we didn't hear a lot of black music in Dayton, Ohio, back in the oh, early 50s, mid 50s, but there was a, a white gentleman by the name of Gene Bagali Berry that worked at an AM station that played a lot of black music back then. And I would emulate him. It was like, you know, I'm with my grandparents or my parents, and I'd get a little thing to look at, a, to act out a microphone, and I'm dancing around the living room and playing disc jockey. Ironically, moving ahead 50 years, Gene Berry was my first program director when I went to WDAL. And he and I were both inducted into the Hall of Fame. Him, unfortunately, posthumously, but uh, both of us in 2009. Who would have thought of that when I was, uh, you know, four, five, six, seven years old? Wow, it's amazing how these things work out. I mean, much like me, I never thought I would get to meet so many of my musical heroes, you know, when I was younger. And um, it's just amazing. And I told you off air and I, some viewers and listeners know this, but I'll just repeat that, you know, the first record I ever bought on my own was the Ohio Players Skin Tight uh, as a kid. And so I, you know, connected right into that. And from that point on, it was just my launching pad to, you know, being immersed into it for my lifetime. So, 
Well, you know, it was amazing because uh, when I first went into commercial radio in 1971, I was in the All Night Show. And all the groups that came into fruition were not present at that particular time. The funk was done by Parliament or James Brown or Isaac Hayes or uh, Sly and the Family Stone. We were playing the funk back, I was anyway, back in 1971. But when I saw the Domino's Pizza commercial with fire as a backdrop, it just brought back some great memories because I broke fire in 1974 when Satch brought it to me, uh, who was the at the time the leader of the group of the Ohio Players. And I had finally convinced our management, the station manager, the general manager, and the owner, uh, H.K. Bud Crow, um, that we may want to think about playing some of the local Dayton artists because it was good for the community. That's all I could come up with at the time because they didn't. Have, many of them didn't have record contracts. They weren't on Billboard's Top 100. So they had no significance to our radio station because we were a big 50,000 watt with three-state coverage, you know, over a million listeners, and, and me trying to sell local West Dayton artists to our managers who just so happened to be white. And I guess if they were black, it would have been the same thing. And I just casually, without putting myself on the line, kept mentioning it in our management meeting. And finally, I guess I broke them down and they said, go ahead and, and give it a try. And the rest of that is history. I don't know if you can see, can you see the fire cover back there? Yeah. I yeah can signed, see. signed by Sugarfoot. That was a thrill. Well, Sugar, it was an interesting thing about the Ohio players because my uh, lineage and my time goes back to when they were the Ohio Untouchables. And it was a funny story because my grandparents lived in a little town called Germantown, Ohio. And in the summer, I would spend time with them when I was growing up. And so I knew kind of the layout, which wasn't much a layout. It was a little country town. But as I uh, was about 17, my uh, uh, time at the uh with my grandparents was starting to dwindle down and i was growing up and branching off to myself and this group called the ohio untouchables was playing at a club in germantown ohio and i snuck in the club to see this band play at 17 years old and the Ohio players used to perform with a group called the Powder Puff Re Review, or the Ohio Untouchables at the time. And these were a bunch of um, transvestites that danced with snakes and furs. And I mean, they were entertaining from that perspective. And I remember sitting at the bar and this woman was sitting with her back to me. And I said, wow, man, I'm, it's my time. So let me buy this woman a drink. And the bartender bought her uh, a glass of whatever I was drinking at the time that I shouldn't have been. I was only 17. 
And she turned around to say thank you, and she was a man. And and I and, and I started. I had to laugh at myself, you know. But um, before I left the club, I saw a great group called the Ohio Untouchables, and they were just magnificent. And I and and that was part of me being hooked on the music era back in the '60s, even but you know years before I went into Dayton radio. And at that point, uh, was um, uh, Pee Wee part of the group and Satch and uh, before Junie or was Junie there yet? No, Junie wasn't there. Junie is a lot younger than we are. Junie was a grade behind me in high school. Um, it was um, the, the players had just left Robert Ward. Marshall Jones, the original bass player, and tells a story. He and Robert Ward got in a fight. Robert Ward knocked him out, and Marshall wasn't a very big guy. And um, when he woke up, they left the group and formed the Ohio Untouchables. It was uh, Dutch Robinson. It was Sugar. It was Marshall Jones. It was Pee Wee. It was Satch. And at that time, it was Greg Webster, who is the original drummer. So those were the members of the Ohio uh, Untouchables that became the Ohio players. Mm -hmm. And so as time wore on, would you see some of these guys around town? And I mean, um, what were they like? How, how much did you get to interact with them? Well, as I grew um, as a radio personality, uh, music director, and then program director, when I would leave the radio station, either from my air shift or my day's work, on a daily basis, I would go over to one of their homes. And at in the beginning, you know, it was apartments, and then it turned into when records starting to sell, and we're talking primarily the Ohio players. At first, um, these guys had half-million-dollar homes, and I would spend a lot of time with them. Also, I would spend time in the studio with them. I'd get a chance to go in when we did Sweet Sticky Thing or Roller Coaster Ride or any of the big hits. And it was a thrill for me um, being a radio personality and being invited into the studio with a group that you saw becoming a pretty big group. I didn't know how big they wanted were going to become at that particular time. But I did know that they were very popular in the mid seventies after they became the Ohio players. And I was just excited to be in the studio with these guys. They were a lot of fun to be around. Uh, they were very, very, very talented musicians. Uh, we were in the studio in Cincinnati, which is only about a you know 50 mile trip from Dayton. And so we became just personal friends. Satch became a personal friend. Uh, Marshall became a personal friend. Sugar and I weren't really that close. Sugar was, you know, he was a, he was a Jimi Hendrix of his era. And he had the, the aura, the presence, the talents, that double neck guitar. And Sugar was in a world of his own. The microphone hair, dude. Oh, yeah. And there was, you know, no criticism. He was a musician. And that's what you, you know, if he wanted to talk, we talk. If he wanted to spend time, we spent time. And if he didn't, we didn't. 
And we, you know, that's that's what I did. I just kind of let them be who they were, who they wanted to be on stage and off stage. Like Marshall would say, he wore that turban on stage. But then when he was off stage, he took the turban off so nobody really recognized it. Yeah, I guess Sugar was kind of the eccentric genius in a way. And Oh, uh, yeah. They were all geniuses, but Sugar was a eccentric genius, uh, like you said, because he had um, something that a lot of people didn't have on stage. He had a lot of charisma, and um, he could improvise very, very well. Of course, they were it was his music, so he can start out one way and end up another way, and the group just kind of follow behind, and they they just you know, improvised as they went along, you know, and people just loved it. When they started playing Fire on stage or Roller Coaster or Sweet Sticky Thing or Heaven Must Be Like This or any of the big hits that they had, you know, it was what you might have heard on the, at the time it was records and then it was CDs. Um, you're going to hear a whole different version when you hear them live. Yeah, I know they would stretch it out to 10 or 20 minutes, Fire. That's right. Yeah. Um, Junie was another eccentric cat. Um, did you get to know him much? I managed Junie. Junie and I went to high school. I was a grade ahead of Junie at Roosevelt. And one thing I, I you know, I, I, I don't pride myself in saying, I don't sing, I don't write, and I don't play an instrument, and I don't dance very well. And so I had to figure out a way to get into this business. And when I was in high school, I would be walking past the music room. And Mr. Spencer, who was uh, the music um, director at Roosevelt, um, brilliant gentleman himself, I could hear this guy singing like a female, singing a cappella. I mean, hitting all these high notes. It was just amazing. And he was hitting them clear. And it was just amazing. And I knew that he was talented. How talented he was, I didn't find out until he joined the Ohio Players at a young age and helped them produce fire. But one thing Junie did was brought me pain. And when he brought me the 12-inch of pain, I mean, that was one of the first songs that I actually played even before Fire because it was just, it, the song was just amazing. I still have it on wax today. And when we put that on the turntable, it was so funky that um, even people who wouldn't even listen to the radio was listening to it. We had a in 1980, we had a 25-7 share of the market. Each point was worth a million dollars in gross revenue. And I tell people that if every rating was taken, was taken for black people in 1980 when the ratings were taken, they would, if every black person was rated, they would never pull more than an eight seven share of the market. Maybe in, that would, uh, eight, eight would be high back then. It's about the same way now. We had a 25, seven share of the market. Now, 
you can do the math. Where the rest of the points come from? There were white people. There were more white people listening to WDAO, which was a good thing, than black because there were more white people in the market. And so we had a great radio station and we played some great music. We were known for breaking artists that nobody else was playing in the country. So if they wanted to hear something new that was only about a mile away from where WDAO actually was at 1400 Cincinnati Street, they could listen to 1077 FM, WDAO. <laughs> well, I regret not being able to tune in back then. You know, I, I we had some good stations in L.A. too, um, KJLH and K-Day I used to listen to all the time. Um, and... Um, you know, but I'm thinking that Funky Worm was the first, like, real big smash for the Ohio players. And General thinking, Yeah, did that sort of, uh, was there a feeling that the game was changing locally at that point, or did not really happen until Skin Tight and Fire? Well, it, it, it happened about the same time, because Junior, as you know, he left the Ohio players and went out on his own. Payne was a one of the funkiest tunes, but it was primarily black. It didn't really cross into the per se general market. When he did Funky Worm, Funky Worm crossed over into the general market, which helped the Ohio players cross over into the general market because, you know, you want to sell records and you're not really that concerned who buys your records as long as somebody does. And the more people that buy your records, um, the more money you make. And so Funky Worm kind of just broke that black-white trend to cross over into the general market at the time. It set a whole, like, kind of mini trend, too. All these groups were doing, like, old granny voice kind of funky records and things like that. Right, right. Yeah. You know, Junie, that's part of Junie's genius. Genius. Like I said, I managed Junie as... I went on at WDAO and um, we became closer. And I can't tell you a guy that is more that was more talented than Junie. He could write, he could sing, he could play all the instruments. So he really felt he didn't need the Ohio players because he could do it all himself and he could and he did and it was just um, phenomenal to see this guy work in the studio because there would probably be no one in there but the two of us and the engineer and when he came out you thought it might be all orchestra in there and he was just fun to be around he was scary because he was so talented he was always, his mind was always in another dimension and always someplace else. And he was very, very hard to keep up with. Very hard to keep up with. Mm-hmm. And I remember we were auditioning um, some females for um, one of the recordings we were doing. And the girls start coming in and they were trying to hit some notes and they couldn't hit these notes that Junie wanted them to hit because he had this uh, four level acapella voice and they couldn't hit these notes. So we call them the soul chickens. And uh, 
You know, they come in smiling and leave crying, unfortunately. But then three sisters came in. They were actually sisters. They called themselves the Almond Sisters, Gwen, Valeria, and Teresa. And I was sitting in the studio, which was in Junie's house, and these three ladies opened their mouths and started singing and blew me away. And he hired them and put them on the background of some of the songs he was singing. I uh, later on placed them with Heatwave, and they went on tour internationally with Heatwave. And all three of the girls are from Dayton. Wow. And of course, Judy went on to do a lot of uh, good things with Funkadelic later on, well, which I think was know, a perfect home for him. <laughs> when George Clinton stepped in, that was a game changer. Uh, Junie was living in Dayton View. He had a 1976 brown Rolls Royce. He had a half million dollar home. He could pick up the phone and call, call Bruce Lundvall, who was the president of CBS at the time, and ask him to send him an advance on his royalties. And next thing, Junie had $50,000, $60,000 in his pocket. And when George stepped in, um, that was the time that I was doing the management with Junie. And Junie, I would go by to pick him up. Of course, we were leaving the Brown Rolls Royce, so I would go by to pick him up and end up with he would drive. He wouldn't let anybody drive that Rolls. And we would go to Harrow Arena. And Junie would have gym shoes on, jeans, and a tux with tails. And he would walk out on stage in Parliament Funkadelic. And if you ever saw him play, there might be 20 members on that stage at the time. He would walk out and raise his hands and the lights would come on and they would jump right. I mean, it was amazing to see, you know, when they started with Knee Deep and, and uh, some of the big hits Junie worked with George on. Because I think Parliament Funkadelic is a great group by itself. But with Junie there, they, he just added that accent because I think George might be able to write and sing, but Junie could write, sing, and produce. So he, that he it made him real valuable to anybody that he worked with. So during the funk era, he could write a funk tune, sing it, and produce it. And then with Parliament Funkadelic, all of them getting together, it was just an amazing, all I did was stand back with my mouth open and just listen to some great music. I, I joke and tease, because I said I have done four shows with Sly Stone, but I've never seen him perform. He's, he's never come out to dressing room. <laughs> you know, and that's a true story. I've done four shows with Sly Stone MC, because if Junie was orchestrating with Parliament Funkadelic, I was the MC. And to go on stage, I, I remember. Um, it was back during the 70s where all these uh, fire um, explosives were going off, flash powder were going off on stage. We're, we're talking five, ten pounds of flash powder. They sound like bombs. And there was this photographer with this high-end Nike camera, and he was on stage, and he kept walking right up to the group, flash snapping pictures. And the backstage manager said, look, look, Turk, tell this guy, please 
not get so close to the group because he doesn't know how we have the stage set up. So I tapped him on the shoulder and said, hey, man, you got to back off a little bit because you're getting in the way. And no, no sooner than I said that, he walked right up to the group again and started snapping pictures. And he stepped in front of five pounds of flash powder and it went off in his face. And when he turned around and the strobe lights came on and his hair was smoking and his eyebrows were smoking <laughs> and he dropped his Nike camera in the audience <laughs> because it shocked him so bad. And I just grabbed him by his arm and let him off stage so he wouldn't fall, you know. But we had great times back then, you know. People sometimes were in places they shouldn't be. And when you were working with one of those big groups like that, you need to know where you where you could be and where you couldn't be because you didn't want to stand in front of all that flash powder back then. They don't do it now now because of uh, uh, some fire codes. But back then, man, you know, five pounds of flash powder going off on stage with Parliament Funkadelic was, was lightweight. Wow. <laughs> well, he had a hard lesson to learn. He's lucky he got away with just that. Yeah, he did learn his lesson the hard way because we try, you know, one thing that happened with Parliament Funkadelic, we never had a lot of security. I mean, these guys were as bizarre as bizarre could be. So when we did a concert, there might be two, three, four security guards, which wasn't nearly enough to manage Parliament Funkadelic. Um, that would come in with sometimes 30, 40 members, and half of them would be on stage. So when that flash powder went off, you know, there was no security guard there to escort the guy off stage, else he would have never been there. He should have never been on the stage in the first place because you get a, you know, you get an on-stage pass, a backstage pass. You got passes around your neck to where you can be and where you can't be, and he was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Oh, man, one of the best shows I ever saw was uh, seeing them in '78 at a small club. Um, I'm not sure if Jenny was there or not. Um, it was around the time he would have been with them, um, but an amazing, amazing show out in Los Angeles. Jenny was in a bad accident, Scott. He um, was coming back from Columbus, and he was sitting on the passenger side with no seatbelt on, and driver had a head-on collision, and Junie went through the windshield, had both of his legs severed at the knees. He was laying out on the highway in a puddle of blood, and the EMS, the way Junie tells it, um, got his legs, put them on ice, took him to the hospital, and they were able to sew them back on. He, he walked kind of bent over and kind of with a limp, but um, that that's a that's a true story. So and it was around 78. I don't know how long he was in the hospital, uh, but an injury like that had to take some time to re oh, to recover. Brutal. <laughs> wow. He's like he survived that. Yeah. Oh. Well, let's get back to the the dating scene. Um, could talk P-Funk all day, too. So. What do you think, you know, the Ohio players, as they gained prominence, they became, you know, a worldwide success. And, um, you know, I can just imagine, Turk, what it was like being present 
when they were, you know, working on some of the masterpieces like a sweet sticky thing or, um, you know, uh, FOP or any Hoochie any of those great, great tracks. Um, There's one thing about the Ohio players. They were so spontaneity. They had so much spontaneity about them. A lot of things didn't actually happen till it went into the studio. I mean, it was like, make it up as we go along. <laughs> you know, those that, that's the kind of guys they were. They they were so uncharacteristic. And I, I guess I like that about them because they had no routine about really much of anything. You know, I, I, I joke and tease because um, they were playing in Hollywood. And they all got on the bus and they were joking and cheesing and so uh, so carefree that uh, and the driver was was right there with the family because I would I didn't go. But unfortunately, they rent, went the wrong way. They went to Hollywood, Florida instead of Hollywood, California. <laughs> and so when they realized where where they needed to be and turned around, not only did they have the 3,000 miles to travel from Ohio, they had another 1,500 miles to come back into Florida. And when they got into Hollywood, it was Sunday and the gig was over with. So they, 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 they were so carefree that things like that happened. Uh, sometimes it's a lot to do with management. Uh, sometimes it's a lot to do with organization, but uh, you know they were just guys that really didn't. All they cared about is playing music. Money was nice to have. They had some serious money, but music was the was the big thing for them. And music from the Ohio players set the way for Roger and Zap and Heatwave and. Lakeside and Dayton and Sun and uh, Fazo and Platypus and, um, you know, all the big groups that came out of Dayton. Ohio players were the uh, pathfinders and set the trail for the rest of them to follow. Yeah, and I've heard that, you know, it was very competitive in that area for bands and that it was, you know, really encouraged and popular in high school to play there. But what do you think it is in your mind, the makeup of that region that contributed to it being such a, you know, uh, a fountain of, of funk, if you will? If it wasn't for radio, these guys would still have the same talent, same intelligence. They just would not have access to the number of people that listened to their music and bought their music. There was one radio station, WDAO-FM, that was a 50,000 watt, which I um, was blessed to be in the right place at the right time. I had a mission. The mission was to be the best radio announcer that I could be as a radio announcer. And then when I became music director in 1975, I was able to sell management on exposing the local groups to the airwaves. And then once it started to create the 
the boom or the explosion, the record labels started to buy advertising at the radio station to promote their groups. The record shops were selling records by the tons. We had businesses making money. We had nightclubs. We had car washes. We had restaurants. I mean, people were making money then legally. And it was it was just a an explosion, a music explosion back then. And I told you about that share of the market. So, you know, everybody was happy. Today in 2019, people still stop me here in little bitty Xenia. If I if I'm out in public and they look at me kind of strange, they say, You look familiar. And then I'll say, you know, I'm Turk Logan. They say, Oh yeah, I remember the voice. You know, almost 48 years later from 1970, this will be uh, the end of this year, be 48 years. So I'm, I'm trying to make it to 50. So that explosion back in the 70s just had a positive effect economically on Dayton, Ohio and the whole region, as a matter of fact. And that you know, when you have groups like Heatwave with Always and Forever and, and selling double platinum right out of Dayton, Ohio. When you have groups like Roger with More with Bounce. Their, to the with, with their first album, too. Yeah. Yeah. With with More Bounce to the Ounce. And, you know, and then Lakeside. And and, and it went on and on and on. And, and it, it, it has it, it's had its positives and negatives, unfortunately, because there were a lot of people in the dating market in radio that wanted that to cease. And they had a lot to do with what's going on now um, as a part of that because, you know, of the region and, and the way Dayton is set up. At its peak, though, were there just like record company guys there all the time or what was it like? Every day. I mean, you know, in our business, we talk about payola, plugola, and, and things of this nature. And so we're, we were trained that you could not, if you go out to dinner, you could not do anything or take any money from any of the guys, and you cannot accept anything over $50. So we are, I already knew that, and I always tried to maintain that, even when I was with one of the guys and we were just out socializing, you know, because it wasn't only just the groups, it was James Brown, it was Barry White, you know, it was the Gap Band, it was all the those members, because they realized Dayton was that kind of market, um, WDAO was that kind of radio station, and when I left for Dayton Radio, I left with 161 gold and platinum albums to my credit and the highest radio ratings in the history of radio. So, you know, the, that was the good news. But, um, you know, it, it was it was a good time for everybody because the music was good. The music made it good. You know, when you can listen to um, All The Way Live with the Ohio players, I, tell, I mean, with uh, Lakeside, uh, I tell a story about Slave. Um, I had a friend of mine who was a former janitor at Atlantic Records. His name was Henry Allen. Henry Allen became the president of Cotillion. And I could call him and say, hey, look, I got a group that I want you to listen to. And Slave had brought me a white cassette of Slide. And I called Henry and told him, I'm going to send this to you overnight. 
and give a listen to it. About a month later, he calls me and says, you know, Turk, I was on the way to play golf. I took this uh, cassette and put it in my uh, car, cassette in my car. He said, I pulled over to the side of the road and signed Slave from a phone booth. You know, that's how they got their first record deal. Dick Griffey with Solar, Sounds of Los Angeles, flew in personally and took me to dinner at um, the then Stover's, it's now Crown Plaza. Dick Griffey was a beautiful man, a former uh, pro football player, about six, seven, about almost 300 pounds, big guy, and just a nice gentleman. And he recommended me for a job out in California where Wolfman Jack had um, just retired from. The station was in San Diego, I believe, but the transmitter was in Tijuana. So they didn't have, they weren't governed by the FCC rules and regulations. And Wolfman Jack had retired and I, they flew me out to California in 1980, and I was jumping from the 49th market. Dayton was the 49th market now, then. It's the 64th now, radio market. And I was going to the number two market out there in California. And, man, I mean, I was in my seventh heaven when I got off that daggone plane. And when I went to the radio station, the guy said, look, you come from with good references, he said, but you got four months to turn this station around. If you can't turn it around in four months, we're sending you back home. And I just thought it was a little bit too much for me to take on at the time. Plus, I kind of wanted to see my daughter grow up um, in Dayton. And I passed on it. Sometimes I, I, I kicked myself. I was, plus, the, I guess the, the good side, I would never have met my wife if I had been out in L.A. So there were some positive things that happened with that. But Dick was a great guy. That was that was because Dick rec recommended me for the job, and and um, even though I didn't take it, I was still recommended for it. So we had that kind of relationship with the Bruce Lundvalls of CBS, who signed Heatwave when I was in London, England. Um, the funny story about Heatwave: Johnny Wilder Jr. came to a dance of mine in Dayton and handed me the Too Hot to Handle album, said, you know, take it home and listen to it. I didn't even play it at the at the dance. He said, take it home, listen to it, and let me know what you think. This was in 1976. I listened to it and fell in love with it. It had all those big hits, Super Soul Sister, Boogie Nights, Always and Forever. Ain't no half-stepping. Ain't no half-stepping. In July of 1977, CBS Records, flew 2,600 people to London, England to their um, convention where they gave their gold and platinum records to the Oak Ridge Boys, the Beach Boys, Earth, Wind & Fire, the OJs, Harold Melvin, the Blue Notes, George Benson. And I had a chance to be there. Heatwave was stationed there because Rod Temperton was from Europe, but Heatwave, Johnny Wilder, Keith Wilder, and were from, they were in the military and that's where they were stationed. So they formed Heatwave. And so when I got to London, I called Johnny up and he sent a car down and picked me up and 
took me on a tour of London and and uh, the countryside, and we went to nightclubs. I was in um, London, England for six days. Had the greatest time. And when I got back in 1977, CBS had signed Heatwave. They repackaged the album and sent it to me and I had been playing it for a year already. <laughs> so I had the original, which I still have the original today. And so unfortunately, um, I mentioned to the mayor of Dayton, who was a Wilberforce University graduate right across from Central State. I mentioned to him in just a lunch or something we were at. I said, Mayor McGee, you know, uh, you might want to think about getting some catastrophic insurance for Dayton, Ohio. And he looked at me, he said, Turk, why, why would I do that? And I said, well, Mayor, there are some multimillionaires living in Dayton, Ohio. If something was to happen to one of them and they're black mayor and they're living in West Dayton and it would be the city's fault, hypothetically, you couldn't afford the lawsuit. Well, it went over his head. In 1979, there was a stop sign down on the ground in West Dayton that the city had been warned to put back up. Johnny's first day back from Europe, coming back home during a heat wave, had a head-on collision, went through that windshield, severed his spine, destroyed his career. CBS and heat waves sued the city of Dayton for $12.5 million. Well, as the story goes, uh, CBS was getting ready to be sold and to become Sony. So they really didn't need the money at the time. But Johnny Wilder, it destroyed his career. And City of Dayton had to settle with him for some big ones. So that's why I've been pushing uh, this script that I wrote um, 25 years ago called The Soul of Dayton. Because, you know, all that story there, some downs, the highs and lows, the goods and the, the bad, and the gold albums, the platinum albums, and how they all came about, no one could tell that story but me because I lived it with these guys. Johnny Wilder worked for me at, we had a pack that if I ever got a chance to build a radio station, I'd put a recording studio in it. In 1986, Central State University invited me to become a consultant to the Mass Communication Center. It was dedicated in August of 1992, the Camille O. William H. Cosby Center for Mass Communication. It's now back the Mass Communication Center for obvious reasons. But from 1986 to 2009, you know, six of those years, Johnny Wilder came up in his wheelchair that Sony had designed for him and worked in my 32 track recording studio with students. And they love, they still remember him today. You know, one of my key students is Omarosa, you know, and we know her from working in the White House and the apprentice. That's one of mine. She calls me dad. She worked in the studio with Johnny Wilder and she learned recording techniques with him. And, they, you know, and, and, and he was like a father to all these kids. And he passed away in 2006. So that story needs to be told because it's guys like you and 
a few other guys that have a genuine interest in the music and in the funk music, but it's a, it's an international story that, um, family, you know, family oriented that needs to be told. And I'm, I, I first started it with the Dayton sound because I wanted it to be just about the artist, but as it grew, it became the soul of Dayton, which I own a federal copyright and a federal trademark. And the, uh, because I want to make it about Dayton, you know, not about me or the artist. I want to tell the story for Dayton, Ohio, because we know that the Wright brothers are from Dayton and we know that Paul Ernst Dunbar is from Dayton. And we want to add to that great history Dayton has. 